Welcome to Healthcare ID Today. I'm John Lynn, together with my colleague and friend, Colin Hung. The world of technology and healthcare are ever-changing in new and novel ways, and that's why we love this stuff. So join us as we discuss the latest healthcare and health IT news meshed together in new ways which help generate ideas and new perspectives. Plus, we'll have a little fun along the way. On today's episode, we'll be asking the question, are medical groups still viable? And this episode is sponsored by P3 Inbound, a marketing agency that helps orthopedic spine and neuro practices. And be sure to follow the show on Twitter at the hashtag HITSM and our personal accounts at TechGuy and at Colin underscore Hung. Plus, check out our 13, and actually, we're almost 14 years. I guess we got to update it. Time keeps flying. 13, 14 years of health IT blog content at healthcareittoday.com. So you ready to talk about medical practices, Colin? Yeah, yeah, totally excited. I mean, we just got back, uh, you know, from MGMA, the big conference, and medical practices are on our minds. And, you know, it's an area we don't really talk a lot about and doesn't really get a lot of attention. So I'm excited for today. Yeah, it is interesting how the hospital area, the acute care space, has taken over so much of the mind share of healthcare IT in particular, and yet ambulatory practices are still the heart of healthcare in many ways. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and it doesn't get a lot of coverage, partly because the dollars just aren't there, I think, you know, and in terms mm. of the deal sizes and the companies that only focus in the ambulatory space, they tend not to be as large as the ones that uh, play in the acute care space. But there's definitely a lot of stuff happening in the medical group world. And and uh, actually, that's one thing I wanted to ask you is, you know, what do you see that's happening or what did you see from the show or just from the things, your, your, your travels, what's happening with the medical group world right now? Yeah, well, your observation is interesting about the deal size, if you will, of, of what a practice can do, because a practice you know, that buys an EHR might be $100,000, a few hundred thousand dollars, whereas we know that that's in the millions and sometimes even the billions with the hospital. So I guess that's maybe where the mindshare comes from. And interestingly enough, I actually think that observation is what we see happening with med- many medical groups now. Uh, there was, uh, I think Bill Cassidy is his name, the, uh, the, uh, uh, the senator from New Orleans or a congressman from New Orleans, and uh, he made an interesting comment about the future of medical groups, and he said that he believes that the future of medical groups are going to be either entrepreneurs or they're going to be employed. And he, said, he clarified, he said, I'm not saying that pejoratively. He said that neither is bad or, or one better than the other necessarily. But he said that is the future of it. And I would make one little caveat with that. And that is that entrepreneur is different than small business. I think a solo primary care practice or a solo doctor is not an entrepreneur. They're a small business. And I think there's a a difference between a small business, which could be very successful and could, you know, many times in the the entrepreneurial lifestyle businesses, it pays your bills and maybe a few other people who assist you, but it's not entrepreneurial. You're not looking for oversized returns. You're not looking to grow and find efficiencies because of scale. And, you know, I think that's what we're seeing in the medical groups is that you either are going to be owned by a hospital and employed by the hospital, or you're going to be an entrepreneurial organization who's going to buy up 100 medical practices and try, you know, or 100 urgent cares, or you're going to create my favorite, which is the super groups in a certain area where they basically say, okay, 
we're competing against the hospital and health system. But if we buy up all the ENTs in the area, guess who they have to work with us because we're a super group. And so then they get the power and then they also get the economies of scale and all those things. So that, I think that's one major trend. And I think he was spot on on the idea of entrepreneur versus or, or employed for the future of doctors in, in medical groups. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you there. Uh, you know, while I was at the show, you know, I had a good conversation, a long conversation with the folks over at CareCloud. And uh, they were talking about, you know, the wave of consolidation continuing in medical groups where it's kind of slowed down a little bit on the acute care side. Uh, and, you know, what was surprising uh, in that conversation was, yes, there's a lot of consolidation, but it's not all hospitals that are buying up the medical practices. In fact, hmm. a lot of other medical practices are buying each other. It's a lot of peer uh, work or peer consolidation going on. And it's exactly for the reason you just talked about in terms of local practices and groups getting together and going, hey, we're stronger together. So, you know, uh, an, an entrepreneur thinking uh, leader will go, let's just consolidate. Let's let's turn what was once five practices into one giant one. Let's leverage that scale. And so basically what the care cloud folks were saying is that there's this big wave of consolidation now that's happening from fellow practitioners, from fellow physician practices. And that is a way where they can remain viable. That is a way that they can remain uh, I guess you can say irrelevant to the acute care organizations that are in that region. So that's definitely continued to happen and I think will continue to happen for a while until I believe there will be no more or very, very few solo practitioners remaining. I just don't think it's, I don't think a solo practitioner is viable anymore in today's market, especially with today's regulatory environment. And actually that's my trend is that there is so much regulation and more coming for uh, medical groups that it's almost impossible for a solo person to do it now. You need that back end mm. administration and so forth. So to me, you know, the big, the big, uh, the big trend, unfortunately, is regulation, and it's just getting worse for for uh, medical groups. No, I think you're right. And that is a, a spot on argument for the solo docs dying uh, is they don't want to deal with regulation. And the only solo docs we see surviving are really kind of twofold. One is the concierge medicine where they say, oh, screw regulation, <laughs> basically, sure. as much of the regulation is around reimbursement. Right. Uh, you know, sure. They can deal with the HIPAA. They can deal with the, you know, so, some of the other uh requirements from a FDA standpoint, but when it comes to reimbursement, that's where it feels overbearing and feels ominous, you know, as a large, a small practice. Uh, so, yeah, I think concierge medicine or, or you know, those types of uh, uh, DPC type of services, they're surviving. And I think you could be a solo doc in a certain area with that type of model. And then the other area we still see solo docs, I think, is the rural area. Sure, of course. But what's interesting in the rural area is, are the regulations going to kill all of that rural medicine? I mean, you must have to have a real passion to be a solo doc in a rural area. And to be quite frank, you can't be more than a solo doc. And so we're, we're seeing many of that being filled by nurse practitioners and other people like that, but it really poses a huge problem for healthcare and rural environments. So, uh, you know, I'm interested to see how that evolves. But I think the other trend that I think is a little concerning to me is a number of private equity firms buying up ambulatory practices. I had someone at MGMA tell me that 
there's a reason that private equity is buying up all of these ambulatory practices. And that, and their argument was that it was because they knew that there were margins in ambulatory care that were available and weren't being exploited, if you will. Uh, I mean, I think exploited and private equity seem to go together, but, <laughs> you know, so, but, you know, my fear is, will that take the heart out of what, a practice normally does and really the true care they do and turn it into more of a machine, which is exactly what most medical practices hate about being owned by a hospital health system is it becomes this corporate environment. And I think private equity takes that to an even larger extreme. So I'm a little nervous about what that means. And it was interesting that they said, hey, they understood that primary care, you know, these medical practices is where the margins were and that's why they were buying them up I, that's a little concerning for me uh well i you know, i can't argue with you on that one i mean pe whenever pe gets involved you, you shudder a little bit um because yeah <laughs> I mean, they're after they're after your margin and so if they're entering then there must be something there for them to take advantage of and some you know hey they're not all evil but you know, usually uh, when you're focused on margins, you're you, you're focusing on that in exclusive in exclusion of all the other things that make uh, medicine and healthcare, you know, what it is, right? The empathy, the, the patient relationships, and and the, you know the community health, and that those are not economically viable things. You can't put a dollar value on on many of that. So, uh, well, you know, and that's why healthcare's gotten so expensive. I think is because. You know, everyone's like, we need to cut the costs in, you know, a tenth because, you know, someone in Europe is paying a tenth and getting twice the value. It's like, do you know what that means? If you cut the cost, that means you're cutting someone's pay. You're cutting someone's margins. You're, you know, and, and with many of these health systems and healthcare organizations being the largest employers, you know, it's going to be hard to cut back on that. And I think private equity goes and exploits those opportunities. And it goes it also goes back to when we are dealing with healthcare, we'll pay anything for our health. We don't we don't really question it. That's why they can get away with crazy billing. I.e., I'm going to go see the doctor. I'm going to have him do whatever he wants, and then the bill's going to be sent later with me having no idea how much it really costs. And I do that because, hey, I mean, I'm in. I need my health. <laughs> and there's not really a choice. It feels like. Well, and one, you know, it's kind of leverage on what you just said, John. I mean, one of the things I'm seeing in the medical group space uh, is increased burden as a result of patients being much more significant part of the payer mix, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a term I, I wish I coined that, but it's, it's I heard that from someone else, and I thought that was really appropriate to say at the practice level. Patients, uh, you know, are having to pay a lot more because of the high deductible plans, because of all of, all of the co-pays. Uh, and it's really difficult when you're a small practice uh, or a small medical group because you you know these people. These people are likely your friends, your neighbors. You probably see them at the local mall. Uh, this is unlike, you know, when you work at a large hospital where you just see so many people and the community they serve is so large. The likelihood of you running into someone who owes you money is and, – and it's, there's a sort of a, a – a third party in between, right? Like, you know, there's the administration of the hospital. When you're a small group practice and you see someone who owes you several thousands of dollars, that must be a very awkward thing. Uh, and then to go and, and put all the mechanisms to go and retrieve it and collect it, uh, this is a big burden. And I'm not, you know, not surprisingly, it was listed in the MGMA frustration report as one of the top reasons why uh, uh, medical practitioners are so frustrated with the industry. Uh, is this whole collection and payment and reimbursements? Uh, and so I think, you know, not surprising to go to what you said earlier, 
you know, I think those uh, physicians and clinicians who are frustrated with that will will opt to become employees and go, let, let me just practice medicine. I'll let someone else handle all this other stuff around reimbursement. Yeah, in the MedEvolve session that I went to, they were talking about applying AI to your reimbursement and things like that. But he, he actually quoted a stat that he said 50%, now the, the patient responsibility is about 50% of the bill. And so you're having to collect a lot more. He said in the past, it was closer to 15 to 20% was the patient responsibility, which is just a massive change. I mean, I, I heard about this from Intermountain four years ago, this change was happening. And so now it's here and it's a reality for all of these organizations. And they took an interesting approach when they talked about it as far as one, prioritizing how you collect and what you collect. And they were using AI and machine learning to prioritize your collections and your AR and all, all of that, whether it's patient or payer, it turns out it you know, applies to either one. And that making your, your collections people and your billers you know, more efficient using those technologies because they were focusing on the wrong things. So I think that's one thing that's really interesting. And we didn't really have to do before when it's 15% of your mix, you know, you'd worry about your payers, make sure your claims are coming through. You don't have to worry about the patient, but now you do. And so that that was really interesting. Of course, there was a really uh, heated discussion at MGMA between some of the practice managers as far as, do you collect that patient payment up front and how do you get, make sure it's the right one. And actually the presenter made a really interesting comment. She said, I want to get into the patient refund business and I want to get out of the patient collection business. And, uh, you know, that's, that may be a little far for some people. And uh, they even noted it in the session. They said, well, that's great if you can do that. But in rural environment, when you have to go to church with them on Sunday and you're forcing them to pay up front, that sometimes doesn't go down so well. So, yeah. you know, there's so many little idiosyncrasies amongst practices, but there was a strong feeling that collect what you can when you can, because even if you collect 25% of the patient up front, that's still a huge improvement over where you were. Even if the data is not perfect, you can always refund that money. So. I thought that was an interesting take. The other one, there was a, there was an announcement from a, a company, and we're writing the full story up on Healthcare IT Today, so you can check it out when we publish it fully. I'm still diving into the details, but they essentially said they're going to guarantee all of the patient payments. So they're going to, you know, any patient payments, they are one, so confident, they say, I'm still diving into the story, like I said, they're so confident they can collect the money and they probably are charging some sort of margin as well. Uh, you know, then they're able to guarantee hundred percent of your patient payments if you use their service. And that's a big change. And I mean, what an ambitious goal from a vendor to be able to do that. So yeah, we'll write up more about that on healthcareittoday.com. Well, there's definitely a lot of stuff happening in that area around payments. But hey, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Healthcare IT Today with John Lynn and Colin Hung. This episode is brought to you by the folks at P3 Inbound. They help orthopedic, spine, and neural practices get and keep more patients. They help with website design, content marketing, managing your online reputation, which is obviously very important these days, uh, for search engine optimization. They are a nimble and capable capable group based out of New Orleans. To find out more, visit them at p3inbound.com. So, John, that brings us to kind of a, a thing I wanted to, to, to ask you. You know, uh, 
technology is a big part of addressing a lot of the challenges that we just spoke about, whether that's collecting from patients or whether that's, you know, addressing some of the concerns around consolidation of practices and so forth. You know, technology can be, a, the, you know, an enabler of all of that. What are some of the tech challenges or some of the things you're seeing uh, specifically in the medical group space around technology? Yeah, so I'll actually start with uh, something that relates to the sponsor, which is interesting. You know, P3 Inbound does the website and the search engine marketing and the ratings. And I had an interesting conference uh, conversation at the Shishmid conference with an agency who said that before many medical practices didn't really care about marketing their practice. And I think that was largely because people chose off the insurance list or they chose off whatever it was. And so it didn't really matter what your website looked like. It didn't matter that you did SEO or some other sort of, you know, tech effort to market your your practice. But I think now it's become almost essential for these medical practices to, to survive. And I think there are some situations where that's not true. They already have, you know, a three-month uh, scheduling backlog. So, you know, that's not true. But I think for many of them, it has become an important part of their tech uh, response to this is being able to provide those services. And then I'd also add even just consumer-like services, whether that's self-scheduling, whether that's uh, secure communication, whether that's reminder services, even the opportunity to do wait lists. Uh, you know, we see a lot of that uh, coming where you need to be able to fill your appointments, which is great for you because no doctor likes a, a canceled appointment. Well, I guess they do like it for the 15 minutes until they see the paycheck, right? <laughs> then they get angry. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, so I think, in, you know, being able to embrace those kind of consumer-like technologies uh, is a challenge for many organizations because it is a cultural shift of mindset for many as well. I'm going to take a slightly different approach to this uh, to this question around tech challenges. Uh, I see one of the big tech challenges actually for medical groups, specifically from the perspective of the uh, health IT company. I think as a if you are making solution for this particular space, one of the things that you now have to factor into your product plans is flexibility of adding more physicians. Uh, because of this wave of consolidation and because of the growth in this uh, sort of larger practice, uh, these practices are going to continue to add physicians at a quick rate. And so you're going to need the ability, you know, now you're going to have to focus on areas that traditionally have been sort of relegated to the laughter thought. How do you add a user? How do you onboard and reassign patients from one physician to another? How do you do internal physician referrals? I mean, that's something mm -hmm. that you've never that this used to never happen. You just go online and search for it. Now, like, hey, no, I want to refer to someone within my own network. How do I do that? Who's my orthopedic? Who's my, you know, pediatrician in that particular area or this particular expertise? Where's my directory, right? These are things that are not typical in physician practice solutions. Um, and I think a lot of the EHR, this is smart ones, um, they're starting to have to bake this into their product because it has become an advantage. Uh, and because, um, as the, the good folks, again, at, at CareCloud were saying, you know, they're seeing a trend of much more strategic buying, where, where mm -hmm. groups are, are looking for solutions, not just to solve the problem of today, mm -hmm. but knowing that they're going to grow through acquisition. They go, okay, now they're asking for tools and technology to support that. Well, and I think ACOs and value-based reimbursement and IPAs, all, all of those things are driving towards that whole network model. And, and even the hospital-owned practices, uh, even more so, are, are doing what you described. 
you know, you went to a session. I, I was interested to hear since I, I had already flown home at MGMA around someone who selected a new EHR because uh, it's almost, you know, in many mindsets, I, I think if you talk to most doctors, they're like, if I never have to switch EHRs again, that'll be too soon. Right. So, <laughs> uh, it, you know, and yet there's some that have switched on three or four. Right. So you kind of have both ends of the spectrum. But do you think there's going to be a lot of EHR switching? Because it felt like your session just following your tweets was kind of saying like, hey, this was worth every penny and every amount of disruption because it made things so much better. Is that what they said? Or what's your take on, is that going to be a tech challenge is really having to switch EHRs even though they all dread it? Yeah, you know, it's funny because, you know, I think three years ago, there was already uh, an acknowledgement by the EHR vendors that the switch market was here. I think mm -hmm. actually it was probably three years too early. I think it, it's now here because of the pain people had gone through it's too fresh. It was still too fresh. They didn't want yeah. to go through it again. But now they're asking the right questions. Look, if I move to this other EHR, what are the advantages of it? And they're they're getting some advantages now from things like you know uh, anti antibiotic uh, stewardship. Uh, they're mm. getting uh, long, more of a longitudinal record that they can share with patients, right? When they have a more comprehensive multi-specialty practice, they're able to show the entire record. They're able to 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 leverage uh, you know some AI around you know, uh, lab tests and lab results and, you know, making sure that they don't order duplicates, right? So these are things that, you know, maybe in the past you go, well, that wasn't really a requirement uh, or I can get away with it or maybe I, there was, we get away with it, meaning there's a manual process I could do to, to get around it. But now they're realizing, no, we should really have this baked into our systems. And these are now becoming reasons, or at least in this particular session I went to, those became some of the reasons why they switched. It was for patient safety reasons. It was for efficiency reasons. And these are the right reasons in my mind to switch EHRs, not like, okay, does this one have a better UI than this one? Because that's so subjective. But now you're getting into some tangible functions and features. And I think that's going to be a, a challenge for people as they move ahead, for sure, is, you, know, uh, you know, all the training and all those things uh, that goes along with switching an EHR. Yeah, well, I think you highlighted what I think is the problem and the challenge that these groups are facing is I was talking to this 50 surgeon uh, group in Midwest U.S., right? And so they're across multiple specialties. And they said to me, so which EHR is best? I'm like, one, that's a loaded question. And two, it obviously <laughs> depends, right? I mean, <laughs> like it depends on a lot of factors. And what do we, you know, as we discussed it more, what came to light is the challenge that so many of these EHR vendors face is how are you able to provide an EHR solution that's great for a cardiologist and an enterologist and an orthopedic surgeon Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. Because as we just discussed, all of these groups are getting bigger and bigger, and they don't want to be on six best of breed EHR vendors and have to create some sort of interoperability infrastructure that allows referrals between them. They want to be on one EHR, but there's no one EHR that's great across all specialties. And those, I said that to him. I said, "Yeah, the one EHR says, oh yeah, we have every specialty." And the the practice manager was like. Yeah, they're in every specialty and they're bad at all of them. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> you said it, not me. But uh, I mean, that's the reality I've seen is that EHR vendors are better at certain specialties. And so how do you manage that if you're a multi-specialty group? 
Hey, we just have a few minutes left in this episode, but you know, you're touching on something that I wanted to make sure we cover, which is these opportunities in the medical group space. And you just picked the one that I was going to talk about, John, uh, which was there's an opportunity for an EHR company right now to really look at and say, hey, look, I really need to bring in a bunch of specialties and be good at a few of them so that way and, and promise more and continue to work at more because mm. this is the future of medical groups, a multi-specialty practice where you have needs that are, that are very unique between you know a GI doc versus a, a, a neuro versus a plastics. I mean, those are very, very different, but having enough capability to allow for those kinds of speciality and allow for that kind of customization, that's gonna be an opportunity because there isn't one that's very good at all of this right now. Yeah, I, th I think the opportunity for medical, group, medical groups, in my mind, go, comes around creating a special patient experience. Mm. You know, the, the private equity, they may do a few things, but it's going to take time. The health system, same story. It's going to take time. You know, they have many people say, oh, they have so much more resources. I say, yeah, but they have a lot more red tape as well, where you as a medical group could create a special, unique experience. I mean, imagine no waiting rooms. Imagine, you know, easy check-in. Imagine easy payments through text and through, the, yeah, creating those type of experiences that you have in the rest of your life in your medical group will make a special experience and it will make that patient say, wait, why would I go to the health system when this is so unique? And so I think there's an opportunity there. My fear is that many aren't going to take up the, uh, that opportunity because they look at their, their revenue and they're like, yeah, I'm doing okay. And so, uh, you know, I think I wonder if that's going to catch up to them, this kind of uh, we're good enough. We don't need to do that. And if that will catch up to them when right now there is an opportunity because groups can move so much faster, can create these special experiences that patients remember and they don't want to go anywhere else. Or will they just kind of sit there and sit on their hands and say, well, it's good enough. Well, and I, I, I mean, I'll never say no to patient experience, as you know, John, as an opportunity. <laughs> but I liken it to look, you know, despite the fact that we have Netflix, despite the fact we have every streaming service that we can imagine, a lot of us still go to the movie theater. Why? Because it's an experience of getting the popcorn as a family or with your friends and hanging out and and just you know being in that giant theater and experiencing a movie for the first time before it gets onto the streaming services and and having that uniqueness. And so even though we have other ways to get health now, whether that's telehealth or whether that's through you know, retail, there's still a place for medical groups if they're able to provide a unique experience. And I think you're absolutely right. There's an opportunity for them to kind of uh, look and exploit that differentiation. And, uh, and if they do, they'll definitely re uh, remain viable. And a personalized experience. Exactly, exactly right. Hey, well, listen, thank you to all of you who tuned into this episode of Healthcare IT Today. You can find out more details about our show by clicking on the programs page at healthcarenowradio.com. And please share your voice and engage with us at healthcareittoday.com and on Twitter using the hashtag HITSM. I'm Colin Hung with my friend and health IT collaborator, John Lin. Thanks for listening and have a great week.